This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Recently, uh, Donald Trump was talking about some of his appeal to the black community, and he said a lot of interesting things. And one of the things he said uh, that has uh, engendered quite a bit of criticism in some quarters is that part of the reason that black voters may be flocking to him is because black people may, well, let me let the former president speak for himself. We've all seen the mugshot, and... You know who embraced it more than anybody else? The black population. It's incredible. You see black people walking around with my mugshot. You know, they do shirts and they sell them for $19 a piece. It's pretty amazing. So basically the implication is that black voters are gravitating towards the former president because they uh, empathize in some way with the battles that he's fighting with law enforcement. These remarks have been condemned from uh, people like uh, Al Sharpton. He was on MSNBC yesterday, the Morning Joe program, saying that this is the epitome of an insult. And I'm not sure if this is the reason why, if it's this new Sharpton criticism of Donald Trump that has brought this to light. But for some reason, over the course of the last five days, a story that uh, was broken first uh, 20 years ago and then 10 years ago about Al Sharpton's work as an FBI informant has crept up in all these news feeds. Do a Google news search on Al Sharpton, FBI informant. All these news stories from different websites, some of which I've heard of, some of which I've not heard of, have popped up in the last five days. But they're all essentially the same story as 10 years ago and 20 years ago. So I thought it might be, uh, since this is the penultimate day of Black History Month, this might be a good opportunity to talk with veteran broadcast journalist Dominic Carter, who has covered and known Al Sharpton for literally decades, to talk about what these informant allegations actually mean, what the substance of them are, and what his response to uh, Donald Trump's analysis of his appeal to the black community uh, will mean for the general election. Hello, Dominic. So nice to see you, Frank. So first, before we talk Sharpton, tell me what you make of those Donald Trump comments on the on the mugshot, because one of the things that he is right about is his approval within the black community has gone up. He, he got about 8% of the black vote in 2020. Now he's up to about 18% of the black, of the, of a, approval in the black community. Now that may not sound like a lot, 18%, but from 8% to 18%, more than double, that's pretty significant. There's a lot of reasons that you could point to some people say it's because a lot of black folks are losing jobs to illegal aliens other people do point as trump seemed to to the issues with law enforcement what do you think is responsible for trump's rising appeal within the black community so we all know by now that everything mr trump says 
he's not a typical politician. So I would say nine out of 10 things that he says are dead on. And then you have that one comment that, you know, it's out of left field. Mm -hmm. This is one out of left field. He may feel, I, I think more he's trying to resonate with the community by saying that. The reason why Trump is doing better with the black community is because the same issues that every other community has, the same problems, perhaps even more, that every other community has, the black community has. And they see Trump as the one to solve their problems. And you mentioned the migrant situation. As you know, I've been following that situation yeah, oh yeah. out of Georgia. And, you know, the, the latest thing that makes me want to throw up that this uh, uh, migrant, if he's the one that did this, uh, he's charged with it, that he tried to dismember her skull. I mean, but but this migrant issue, I don't think Democrats understand that the black community is really turned off. And so Trump is doing well in the black. See, folks don't understand. He was always cool in the black community. Mm -hmm. Always. Rappers looked up to Donald Trump. They rapped about him, right? I've been in the room with him when, uh, what's his name, 50 Cent? I remember the interview he did with you in New York One yes. where he said he had a great relationship with the blacks. I was in the room with him yeah. when 50 Cent called him. Right. So they, they would talk to each other all the time. Him, Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, they all at boxing at Trump's hotels in Atlantic City, raising money, spending money on civil rights. So it doesn't surprise me that Trump is doing well. Once, once Trump was able to get over this slam from the mainstream media that he's a racist, which is ridiculous— I expect for him to do better than 18%. Really? Black vote. Uh, yes. uh, well, that's yes. going to be interesting. All right. Now, I'm not sure why this story about Al Sharpton has resurfaced. There's really nothing new here, but uh, there's uh, the AP has put it out on their wires again. And whenever you know the AP puts out a story, it kind of gets yes. picked up by everybody. And now website after website is picking this up today. And or the, within the last couple of days, in the last 24 hours, about a dozen people have sent me this story. And if people are unfamiliar with the story, it's based on a report from the website The Smoking Gun, where the Reverend Al Sharpton said that um, he, a report that he spied on New York mafia figures for the FBI in the 80s is old news. And this is 10 years ago he said this, and said that he never considered himself an informant. This is uh, some of the audio of Sharpton saying this 9 or 10 years ago. In my own mind... I was not an informant. I was cooperating with investigations. Sometimes, and I've heard of a lot, a lot of Italians try to make this distinction. A lot of Italians who do a proffer session with the federal government and they've been mobsters, they'll say, no, I was not, I was not at all a rat. A lot of their cohorts disagree. This has been an issue that's affected everybody from uh, John Gotti Jr. on down, the debate over what a rat is. Sharpton says he was never a rat. I was not and am not a rat because I wasn't with the rats. I'm a cat. <laughs> I chase rats. So the website, The Smoking Gun, said Sharpton was recruited by a police FBI task force to record conversations with mafia figures. And I know some of these mafia figures by reputation, and some of them were pretty bad hombres. And uh, they refer to Sharpton in court papers as confidential informant number seven. He used electronic equipment hidden in a briefcase to record their, you know, their discussions. 
Dominic, you knew Sharpton in those days. You covered Sharpton in 2003 when this, or 2004 when this first surfaced, and then in 2014 when it again surfaced. What do you know about uh, Sharpton purportedly being a rat or, as he said, just cooperating with an investigation? Wow. Well, as I look back, um, full disclosure, I think that there's no journalist out there that knows Al Sharpton better than me. No doubt. Um, He's been to my residence. I've been to his residence many times. Uh, We have been friends over the years. Now, the only thing I can tell you is every time I've asked him privately, he denies it. Privately. The soundbite you just played where he says, in his mind, that's a troubling answer to mm-hmm. me. Because that's 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 walking the fine line. Um, all I can tell you is that, I, and I've been in his residence when he lived in Brooklyn. And I would get there sometimes early in the morning, 6 a.m. in the morning. And uh, he had a desk. And it was two phones on his desk. One was a red phone, literally. Wow. And if my memory serves me correctly, he said the red phone was to report crimes to the FBI that was going on in the black community. And I just left it at that. And then this story happened. Um, every time I, I've talked to him privately about A to Z. And I, the story, he's got the best stories in the world. Oh, I can imagine. On, on every celebrity that you can, from Michael Jackson on down. And uh, Trump, Michael Jackson. And every time I've asked him privately, Rev, 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 he would deny it. So I, I don't know. One of the things that we've seen in the black community is this uh, mantra that uh, snitches get stitches, right? And it's horrible. A- and uh, that has caused a lot of uh, young black men that have been witnesses to crime not to want to cooperate with police. Is there any is there any possibility that Sharpton could use the fact that he was involved with law enforcement somehow to be more of a positive role model to no. young black youth? No. no, because one, if he fessed up to that, that would make him a marked man with the mob. Mm-hmm. Number one, that's number one. They don't care about the civil rights issue. Uh, if he sent some, I, I'm speculating here. If he sent some of them to jail, that's a big problem. And uh, and two, it, it, no, he could not spend that. If anybody can spend any spend anything, it is Al Sharpton. Believe mm-hmm. me, you know you can hate him, you can call him a race hustler, you can call. He's one of the quickest guys on his feet. Now I don't know about right now, uh, but he's one of the quickest guys on his feet in terms of dealing with reporters. He can spin and come up with a line. He can he can get himself out of corners that nobody else can get out of. And see, the fact that he's been tight with every U.S. president going back to, what, Clinton? Right? At least, right. At least. So if there was that relationship with the FBI, you're never going to know it now. Let me just go back, and then I'll, I'll let you go because I know you've had a long day. Because uh, to- he would often just so he would often spend under Clinton. I'm telling you what I know for a fact because he's called me from the White House. He would often be at the White House. Clinton would be up. We all know about his uh, two a.m. Yeah, it gets four Sharpton, hours of sleep. Right, right. Sharpton would often be at the White House, and so and this continued under Obama. And he didn't have a, a bad relationship with George W. Bush. Publicly, 
everybody puts on a good sure. show. Right, right. But it's privately, pro right, yeah. it's pro wrestling. That's the good way. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Morano, right. because a lot of people don't understand. Exactly. No, no, no. It's pro wrestling. Anybody that's followed wrestling and worked in politics knows how similar the world right. of politics and pro, and pro wrestling, wrestling is. L- let me though go back to what Sharpton said there. Because I'm wondering if maybe it's not as crazy as, uh, excuse me, what Trump said there. Because maybe it's not as crazy as what Sharpton and others have made it out to be. Uh, David Patterson, I remember some remarks he made on the radio once. I think it had to do when uh, the Anthony Weiner scandal took place. Or maybe it was another embattled politician. Could have been John Edwards. Could have been Elliot Spitzer. And what Patterson said is that uh, the black community, even if you're white, once you're in trouble at least for the first time, the black community will immediately adopt you because they feel that they've been kind of screwed over by the man. And that's my words, not Patterson. It's called the OJ OJ treatment. That's that's the way. So in other words, OJ had no relationship with the black community at all. Right. OJ didn't want to be black. He didn't identify with blacks. Everything with his life was white. When OJ got in trouble, OJ became black, (laughs) whether he wanted to be black or not. And I didn't understand the black community. I know black people that were cheering. I mean, like they won something when he beat those charges. And it was disgusting because the man should be in jail. And you're not benefiting anything because OJ won. But yes, so when OJ was in trouble, that's what, you know, he had left his black wife, settled down, you know, and remarried. It's funny that you say that because in the OJ documentary uh, that won the Oscar a few years ago, that one of the people that was escorting OJ when he was being arrested, I think, actually says when he sees all these black people lined up around his very Tony residence in the Brentwood section of, uh, of Los Angeles or, or in, in California, he says, what are all these N-words doing in Brentwood? Right, right. And, right. and that, you could, that apparently was his attitude towards a lot of members of the black community. That's the understatement of the year. <laughs> OJ was, uh, for lack of a better term, OJ was whiter than white. But, but when he got in trouble... When he got in trouble, then he was forced to come home because he was ostracized everywhere else. So does that work for someone that's not black in spite of how tan he may be at times like Donald Trump? Does the black community adopt you when you're no, embroiled? No, but it's worked for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Mm-hmm. That's why every time Cuomo, since his scandal has delivered a speech, it's been before a black church. Interesting. Well, um, if people want to comment, they're certainly welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. If you want to hear more from Dominic Carter, you can catch him every midnight to 1 a.m. on uh, 77 WABC in New York or anywhere in the world at WABCradio.com. Thank you, my friend. I like the haircut. Thank you. It looks good. I I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I like yours. (laughs) It strikes me as low maintenance. (laughs) It is. All right. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up because we've got a great show coming your way uh, over the next... Over the next bit, because uh, coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk with an honest-to-God radio legend, one of my all-time favorites, the great uh, Tom Likas. Now, Tom Likas has done it all in the world of radio. He's been a producer. He's been a program director. He's been a talk show host. And when I say he's been a talk show host, he has had a level of success as a talk show host that most of us can only dream of. He's had successful local shows in multiple major markets, successful local shows in mid-sized markets, did a very successful, one of the most successful in the world, 
nationally syndicated radio show and did a lot of different types of talk. A lot of people these days remember him for the genre of what they may call hot talk, uh, where, you know, can be kind of raunchy at times. You're talking about girls and things of that nature. But he really did a whole lot more than that. He did a lot of great music over the years. He did a lot of great comedy, did a lot of great political commentary. And it was not always easy to pin down where he came down politically. Then... After a whole lot of success in the world of, uh, of radio, talk radio, terrestrial radio, he goes and does the same thing on the Internet, and now he's doing some really interesting things as well. I saw this story about Wendy's preparing to charge surge pricing for, for people that show up and order at Wendy's at certain times. And believe it or not, the first person that I wanted to ask about this was uh, was Tom Likas. And he's someone that uh, grew up poor and essentially became a self-made millionaire. So he knows a lot about trends, knows a lot about the media, and knows a lot about money. So we're going to pick his brain on all that coming up in a bit. We're going to get to your calls shortly. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. David in the Bronx going to uh, join us in a little bit. He won our Ask Frank Anything contest on Friday. And I don't know if you remember the reporting of the AI calls from a fake Joe Biden in New Hampshire, but we have tracked down the person who arranged for those calls. Turns out, shockingly, it's somebody that I know. So I've asked him to join us on the radio. He has agreed. We're going to talk with him about why he did this, what he was hoping to pull off. If you don't remember this, here's a little bit of one of these robocalls that went out in New Hampshire. What a bunch of malarkey. We know the value of voting Democratic when our votes count. It's important that you save your vote for the November election. Sounds like Biden, doesn't it? Not Biden. A.I., and the guy that did it is going to join us and uh, explain to us why. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Melvin is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, Melvin. I support the good Reverend Al Sharpton, number one. Because since me, you cannot have a wizard. Do you support criminal behavior or you are against criminal behavior? Because Reverend Al, when I was sitting in that rally years ago, when that mess came up, they, he was told that in order to get the M- entertainment um, business, you need to pick your goal seat, and yes, you had to do these folks with criminality. But I hear it practically every day on your show how much you support criminality, criminal behavior. And as far as OJ system is concerned, I'm going to ask you just one question. If you was on trial for your freedom and your life, and nobody should get on that witness stand and said they saw you do A, B, C, D, and dot the I across the T. Do you want? I'm not asking you what you're guilty of that. Do you want to be found guilty? And nobody get on that witness stand and testify. Well, yeah, you do, I mean, Melvin, Melvin. Yeah, of course I wouldn't want to be found guilty. But I. That's one of the reasons that I also wouldn't kill my wife. I mean, that's that's you know that stands to reason. if you want to comment 800-848-9222 we're also on Twitter yes I still call it Twitter at Frank Morano that's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O we're uh, going to unveil our listener of the week a little bit later as well Uh, a surprise pick this week which uh, I think is but I think one that I think is well deserved all right uh, let's talk with Tom Likas straight ahead the Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. the hour, there are a lot of ways to measure success in the world of radio. Obviously, uh, the most common metric is ratings. Uh, the stations and the personalities that do well in ratings are the one that are the ones that are highly regarded. And the most important aspect for people that try to make a living in this field, especially anybody that's a general manager or the owner of a station, is revenue. This the personalities and the shows that generate the most revenue are the ones that are most important to a station or a radio company's bottom line. Then there's the intangible aspects of what makes radio or a radio personality so good. You know, if you're a veteran talk radio listener, you can listen to someone and know if they've got the chops to be great on the radio. Well, our next guest is not only one of my favorite talk show hosts of all time, but he is someone who is three for three. He's generated the kind of revenue and ratings that most uh, radio personalities can only dream of in market after market, format after format. And he's also someone that anybody that knows the radio businesses acknowledges is a real pro. I am very, very pleased to be joined by veteran radio talk show host and podcaster Tom Likas. Tom, thanks for joining me on the radio. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Do you care? (laughs) Well, you know my stock and trade. Probably not. Hey, uh, Tom, obviously you've always been very open that um, you were on the radio to make money and you were doing what you did in the media and still do what you do to not for charity or a love of what you did. I'm sure you did love what you did, but because you wanted to make money and uh, you've been very open with the fact that you're making money doing this podcast, a subscription podcast that people can check out at premiumtom.com. I have to think you have a significantly diminished audience that you're reaching on a daily basis or on a weekly basis than when you were on the radio. I'm curious, how does that affect you, if at all? Do you care that you're not being listened to by as many people as you were when you were on terrestrial radio? No, because I was never in it for the ego, Frank. Never. Um, I'm in it for the money. I used to say on the radio, and people thought it was a joke, I used to say, people would say things like, um, why are you doing this show? Why do you do it? I said, do it for money. And they say, what do you mean? I said, if I'm here today, I'm here because I want money. When I have enough money, I'm not coming in anymore. Now, I said that many times. And people thought it was a punchline. And uh, just this week, 
it will be 15 years since I did a daily radio show. I wasn't kidding. Wow. I came in to make the money. I came in to, uh, you know, come like a flash of lightning, a bolt of lightning, uh, uh, get ratings, generate a lot of revenue, make a lot of appearances, come up with some ancillary businesses. I'm in the wine business. I'm in other businesses. And, uh, but, but it, always the goal was to make money. I live on a 20 acre compound in Santa Barbara wine country. And uh, that was always my goal was to enjoy, you know, the last 50 or 40 years of my life, living where I want to live, doing what I want to do and coming into the radio station or any job in an office five days a week. I did it for 40 years and I'm done. You know, I remember uh, we've talked before about when uh, the radio company that you were working for uh, and the station that you were on flip formats. They still paid you out the rest of your very healthy contract. I'm reading a book now by a, a pro wrestler who talks about, you know, him being suspended for something that he doesn't even really think he did wrong. But he basically said that being paid your full salary for 15 or 16 weeks without having to do anything is the greatest thing in the world. I'm curious, was that your experience after uh, your station flip format? Yes. Yes. I had a five-year, no-cut contract, and uh, without getting too specific, in the eight-figure range. Hmm. And uh, so one day I got called in by the, uh, I don't know, it was the HR manager or whoever it was. I got called in. I was told the station was going to change format. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. So I expect I'll be paid by full contract. Yes. Fine. I won't come in anymore. And the money, it was CBS radio when there was such a thing. (laughs) And uh, they paid me every penny they owed me. They were very good to me. I got nothing bad to say about CBS or any of the people who were there at the time. Uh, but uh, sure, I had 37 paid months of vacation. You, you, know, you know, it's funny. Richard Bay, who's a friend of mine who's been a guest on the show, used to be very big in the world of TV. And he got fired at, at a time when he was making a whole lot of money at, right after he had signed a two or three year contract extension. And a lot of people and I've been with him when they when people have said this to him. Oh, that's so terrible that you were fired. I can't believe they did that to you. We really miss seeing you on TV. How could they do that? And basically he says, well, I mean, save your 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 sympathies for people that are slightly less fortunate. I loved it. I was making more money than I ever did without having to do anything. I got to send my parents to Europe, went for a trip around the world, and I didn't have to do anything. And I want to ask you now about Don Lemon, because apparently CNN is going to be paying Don Lemon who, and it has nothing to do with his uh, political views or anything like that, I I think was pretty mediocre on television. I didn't think he brought anything special to the table. They're going to be paying him $24.5 million to settle his uh, lawsuit against the network. He's going to get paid $24.5 million to end this conflict with CNN, and this is basically what is thought to be the full contract value during the three and a half years since he was on the air. I I think it's a good bet that uh, Tucker Carlson, who has the same lawyer as Don Lemon, is going to get the same deal at Fox. So I guess my question, Tom, is how do you sign up for that? How do you sign up for getting fired and getting paid your full salary? 
Well, the way it generally works is you come in and nobody's listening or watching to that station or that network at that time. You come on, you fire things up, you get people angry, you drive people crazy. And then when the ratings go up, the advertising revenue goes up. And then uh, when the advertisers uh, uh, multiply, now you have new people weighing in on what you should be talking about on the air, what you shouldn't be doing on the air. And uh, at some point, uh, the next management or the one after that comes in and says, we can't have this. He's on the air saying all this stuff. Yeah, I'll give you an example. I'll give you two examples. I was told while working for CBS Radio, um, and I was not working for the network. I was working for the local station in L.A. I was told, don't talk about the NFL. And I said, why? The NFL is like that. That's the American dream. It's everybody's favorite pastime. Sure. Why can't I talk about the NFL? Well, the other day, you went on the air, and you said that people are getting injured, the head injuries, it's terrible, we should do something about that. And so I said, uh, yeah, but you know, this was uh, you know, 15 years ago. I said, uh, yeah, but wait a minute. L.A. didn't have an NFL team. What do you care? We don't carry NFL games. We don't carry the radio version of Monday Night Football. None of it. And the uh, person at the station said to me, the management side, he said to me, uh, well, look, uh, one day L.A. may get a football team. And if it does, we want a chance to bid on that. We want a chance to bid on the rights. And if you're on here attacking the NFL, we'll never get that opportunity. And I'm going to tell you, you'll be surprised because I would know that Mr. Outrageous, um, I, I stopped talking about the NFL because there were, I had, uh, uh, you know, uh, eight figures uh, that I wanted to collect every penny. I didn't want to get in any lawsuits like Don Lemon. I wanted to work until they uh, didn't want to pay me anymore. And I, I just wanted to get all the money I was promised. The other thing I was told never to talk about, believe it or not, was seven up. <laughs> Don't talk about the 7-Up. Now, I didn't even know they, I, you hardly know they make 7-Up anymore, right? I mean, it's like all these other brands have come out, Sprite and Starry and this and that. Well, don't talk about 7-Up. Well, you said something on the air the other day. And let me tell you what I said. I, I, I saw a can of 7-Up when I was at the supermarket. And it said on, on like a banner on the can said, um, new. Um, all natural, new, all natural, seven up. But then if you read the label more carefully, it told you that seven up lemon lime soda contained no lemon and no lime, no juice, <laughs> no, no pulp, no the red rind shavings. Right. Nothing. So what was natural? <laughs> What's all natural about that? Well, I said that. And I said to the management type, I said, wait a minute. 7-Up's um, not an advertiser. I checked before I came on and did that show. Not an advertiser. And here's what the general manager of the station told me. He said, well, yeah, but there's an energy drink that does advertise on the station. And they don't have their own delivery truck. So they get delivered on the truck with 7-Up and Dr. Pepper and uh, Sunkissed. And uh, 
So when you talk about uh, 7-Up, it's causing us a problem with the energy drink that, that rides on that truck. So there were no more shows about 7-Up. <laughs> Even though I still say that no lemon and no lime means it is not all natural. I don't care what it says on the can. Uh, I, I think most uh, reasonable people would agree with you. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Tom Likas. You can uh, check him out at premiumtom.com. Does a, a terrific uh, podcast. Uh, Tom, you are obviously somebody that has been able to forecast the trends in the media business better than most throughout your career. And one of the things that we're seeing, you mentioned the NFL. Other than live sports, it looks like nobody is watching any sort of television. There was some new numbers out yesterday, and no version of TV, not cable, not streaming, no one is able to grow an audience right now, with the exception of football and a couple of other sports, and some streaming services like Netflix. So the two winners are Netflix and live sports. Do you think television is, if not dead, dying, or can there be something that might save television? We've seen different personalities, different changes and trends in media that have brought new life to what was considered a dead format. Some people say Rush Limbaugh did that with the AM band back in the 80s. I'm not saying he did or didn't, but I'm curious, is TV passe? Yes, uh, it is very, you, and I, you, you're a big fan of broadcasting history, so you sure. know what I'm saying is true, that, um, you know, we had something just like network TV at one point, network radio, mm -hmm. and the la in fact, the last network show was hosted on CBS radio by one Stan Freeberg in the 50s, and um, a TV's linear uh, grid of programming, that was an invention of radio. And uh, there were series like Jack Benny, and there were series like Fred Allen, and there were series like Good Orphan Annie, and they just transferred that to television. Does anybody think that network radio is coming back? Mm. No. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the page has to turn now. Page has to turn. New things have to happen. And as far as calculating audiences, well, how hard is it to calculate your audience when it's available in your show is available in seven or eight different locations? And the Super Bowl was on how many channels this year? Channel two, <laughs> Paramount Plus, Nickelodeon. How do they even count all the viewers? Now they they had the, the most watched uh, network television show of any, of all time, but uh, many of the shows now are on so many outlets: Hulu. And Apple TV Plus, um, there's no one place that everybody sits down. You know, think back to what promos for TV looked like up until the 80s, where they, they used to promote networks as a place you would park your butt and sit for three hours and watch NBC. Who does that anymore? Mm -hmm. And who will ever do that again? It'll never happen. You know, there are a lot of young people, and when I say young, I'm not talking three or four. I'm talking 13, 14, 15 years old. They legitimately don't understand the concept of certain shows being on at certain times. They don't relate to the fact that if you wanted to watch Seinfeld, you had to be at your television set at 9 o'clock on uh, Thursday night. They are so accustomed to whatever you want to watch, being able to watch it whenever you want to watch it. That's right. And once that genie's out of the bottle, it's not going back in. Why would it? 
who is going to you know, go out and get a pizza on Saturday night and sit and watch CBS for three hours like they did in the era of the Bob Newhart show? It's never going to happen. Um, one of the things that we saw this week was President Biden going on Seth Meyers' show. There was a time when a president or a presidential candidate going on one of these late-night shows was a big deal. You can go all the way back to uh, John F. Kennedy appearing on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr, but you can also go back 32 years ago to uh, Bill Clinton appearing on Arsenio Hall. More recently than that, uh, George uh, W. Bush appearing on David Letterman. A whole host of political figures appearing with uh, with John with uh, Jay Leno, it's almost like you know he he made a little bit of news Biden, and you would think it would be very newsworthy because he does so many fewer interviewers than uh, interviews than his predecessors. But it's almost like it happened and it's over. I'm curious, where do you see the late night TV shows these days specifically in terms of their quality and in terms of their impact on the the culture? They're in the death throes. Um. You know, if you ever want evidence of this, anybody who has a Roku box on their TV, and I know many people do, um, if you look at the Roku channels where they have their own set of channels, one of the channels they have is Johnny Carson. <laughs> I love it. I, I love it. It's great. Right? 247 Johnny Carson. And when you turn on Johnny Carson and you hear Ed McMahon's voice say, Johnny's guests tonight are Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. Uh, Jonathan Winters, uh, you know, and now when you turn on late night TV, our guest is Joe Blow, who is the best supporting <laughs> actor on third or fourth banana on a show on Hulu you've never heard of and will never watch. And and half the guests who are on now are people on these shows that have very few viewers. And uh, now you've got CBS using Stephen Colbert to hump every Paramount Plus dog. Uh, that is on the air. So um, uh, the, the late night show and talk shows, I really only care now about the monologues or the one little comic bit they'll do in the beginning. And uh, the rest of the time, um, I, I, I turn it off. Last night, I missed uh, Joe Biden on Seth Meyers. You know why? Because uh, out here on the West Coast, I could see Seth Meyers' monologue uh, at uh, 10 p.m. <laughs> Right. So at 10 p.m. I go to YouTube and I put it up on my big screen and I watch Seth Meyers' monologue. Last night when I was going Betty by, I happened to have the TV on NBC and oh, I said, well, if I heard Biden might be on there tonight, I'm going to take a look. And uh, I took a look and I saw Amy Poehler for the 4,000th time <laughs> with a bottle of champagne. I'm not staying up for this. So I saw Biden's uh, appearance today. I never stayed up till 1 a.m. to watch a talk show. Forget it. If I, for me, and by the way, it's not that I don't have any content or any entertainment. I do listen to the radio late at night, but I, that's just because I grew up with it. I would say that uh, probably a lot of people now uh, who are in their teens or 20s, they are listening to uh, other things, lots of other things. I mean, the fact is that there's apps where you can listen to any of 100,000 radio stations around the world, um, which it, it sounds great on the surface. But if you work in radio, it's not a great thing. Oh, yeah. But I, I predicted many years ago that, uh, you know, one of the great things, one of the reasons we were so well compensated in radio is because of the scarcity of, of stations that broadcast a format. You know, in New York, at most, there were three stations doing talk radio. 
And even there, there wasn't even a 24 hour talk station until 1970 WMCA. And, um, uh, now, uh, I can listen to anything, anywhere. I can listen to other countries. When I was about to make a trip to Chile to go on a wine trip, I turned on the radio stations of Santiago, Chile, just to see what the weather was, if it was an earthquake, something was going on. Uh, people have access to anything and everything. And it's great for the audience to have all this content to choose from. But it ain't great for the people who work in the oh, industry. Yeah. No, no, it's a scary thing. Somebody that's had a lot of success in both radio and television is Wendy Williams. And uh, recently, even though she's a relatively young woman, only 59, she's been diagnosed with the same sort of ailment that Bruce Willis has, aphasia and uh, a type of dementia. And there's actually a documentary, which she apparently is a party to. She's the executive producer, from what I understand, where they chronicle her descent into dementia. I brought this up the other day, and most people who called in, including a lot of people who had family members who had uh, suffered with similar ailments, they felt that this was exploitive rather than illuminating. I understand you've actually seen this Wendy Williams documentary. Give me your take on it. What do you think about this? I watch, I devoured all four episodes this week. And um, put it this way, Wendy Williams is listed as the executive producer. And if you read about how this documentary came to be, Wendy Williams let the documentary makers into her life and she got got a piece of the action, a taste of uh, the profits by being named executive producer that guarantees her about, on average, half a percent of the gross. Uh, and what Wendy Williams was hoping to do, uh, because if you watch the show, she's become delusional about some of this stuff, in my opinion. Um, she wanted to document her uh, return to television. And so she thought this documentary was going to be showing how she's coming back from being fired and coming back from losing her husband uh, to an affair and coming back from whatever else she was coming back from. And, uh, well, as they filmed the documentary, it turned out that, you know, her eyes were bulging out and uh, she was uh, yelling at everybody and forgot things and forgot what city she was in. So now the producers of the documentary have to make a decision. Do we stop? We're halfway through or a third of the way through. Do we stop doing this or do we keep going? And uh, the documentary makers who wanted to help Wendy uh, do her comeback on this documentary. And they felt this was newsworthy and they had to keep going with it. They tried, they, they, they claim they tried to handle it in a sensitive, delicate manner. Look, the bottom line is Wendy Williams doesn't want people saying she's an alcoholic. And uh, so anytime anybody in her family tells her to stop drinking, she tells them, don't talk to me anymore. Get lost. So, you know, I mean, if she's saying that the documentary wasn't true, that the contents weren't true, I mean, um, I believe, and it's just my opinion, I believe that it's 100% true. Um, I, I've watched a lot of these documentaries, and some of them are, you know, ridiculous or gimmicky, but this was a documentary, and it, it you know, it started off well enough, and then after a while, you see her appearing to lose her mind. 
if I was the producer of that documentary and I spent a hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollars on crews and lights and cameras and traveling to Los Angeles, traveling to Miami, and, and now I've got half a movie made, I'm not stopping in the middle. I'm going all the way to the end, and that's what they did. Uh, speaking of Wendy's, uh, the, Wendy, Wendy's the restaurant made quite a bit of news yesterday by basically adopting this uber style surge pricing where they're going to charge more for certain amounts of uh basically for people that go in there at certain times where the restaurant's busier my prediction is that you think this is great now uh, just to show you what other people are thinking there was actually a a state assembly member from new york which tweeted the uh, the news story about this and said uh and said i will draft a bill against this dystopian blank immediately. This is a state legislator from your old neck of the woods in the Bronx. Yeah. Um, Speaking of the Bronx, are they going to stop the New York Yankees from selling tickets using surge pricing, or as they call it, dynamic pricing? I, don't give them any ideas. I'm sure they they will. No, wait, but it's already been, oh, yeah, I know that the Yankees are doing this right now. They've been doing it. The Dodgers do it. Uh, there are several baseball no, teams. No, I'm saying don't give the state players. legislators any oh, ideas. Yeah. Well, you know, come on. The state, the New York state legislature has a long history of trying to make laws against the stupidest things. Uh, uh, like, for example, uh, when people decide that Bruce Springsteen's tickets are too expensive. Well, in Albany, they're already speak, they were speaking out against that and trying, they were going to make laws about how much you could charge for a concert ticket. People have a right to get a concert ticket for less than a hundred bucks. They have a right. No, they don't. No, they don't. If you don't like the price, watch them on TV. Uh, but you know, watch something else. You don't have to watch that. Uh, all these people love talking about freedom in America, and then they want to make laws about stuff like that. Now, I understand if you make laws that say the, the fire department can't go on strike uh, sure. or the sanitation department can't. I get that. But we do, Wendy's is not a public necessity. It's junk food. Uh, it's, it's some of the best tasting junk food, but it's junk food. And I know I'm talking to the New York metropolitan area right now where people love to slam a couple of Dunkin' Donuts or a buttered roll at the 7-Eleven. Um, but let's face it, we're talking about junk food. We're all dying uh, to various uh, extents uh, from the stuff we are consuming. Less Wendy's would be better for everybody. Um, I don't, and that's like the argument about the minimum wage at fast food places. People will get upset about that. I, I'm upset um, uh, about the fact that the government is coming in and telling people the minimum wage needs to be 20 or $30 an hour. But in reality, I don't care if the minimum wage for fast food workers is $1,000 now. It's not my problem. Tom, on that note, we're going to have to end it there. It's always such a treat to talk with you. I hope we can do this again soon. Always. Thanks, Frank. The great Tom Like is checking out at uh, premiumtom.com. And uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on there. A ton of great stuff on there, even if you uh, choose the non-subscription option. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, be my guest. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.
other side at midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, Gene Pitney, believe it or not, this was the first song Tom Likas ever played on the radio. He won a contest when he was 14 years old and ended up playing this song, not because he wanted to, but because that's what the program director made him play. And that was an early lesson for him in the radio business. Hey, uh, those of you that have been following the chronicles of... Ed the Cat. I was trying to do an interview from my office at home yesterday, and Ed is in there. He's got to be locked in there so he doesn't interfere with the other cat and doesn't bother the other cat, Prissy. And Ed is slated to go back to Eastern Long Island on Sunday, and I had been rooting for Ed to make this work. I have to tell you, this cat was such an obstruction in me trying to do this interview. He kept stepping all over the computer that I was using to connect to the radio station, kept disconnecting me. I kept trying to get him off the computer, and this cat actually scratched me. The cat scratched me. I'm his biggest defender. He scratched me. So I'm not necessarily going to be shedding any tears when he goes back to Long Island on Sunday, but an interesting thing happened. He's got an interview with a prospective home that may want to adopt him on Saturday. So... What do we do if this person comes to our house, meets with him, and then says to us, well, I need a little more time before I can make a decision on that. I think we're just going to tell this person we need, you know, a decision essentially that Sunday by Sunday morning. So we'll see where it is. That is the latest with Ed. He is living on borrowed time this weekend, likely our final weekend with Ed. And after he scratched me, a pretty bad scratch, too, and interfered with my radio interview, I am... Uh, Liking him a little less, uh, I'm being honest. Help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.